As we've indicated a few times, a letter that was originally written as a missionary support letter uh, that uh, God guided into becoming the greatest uh, theological treatise ever, ever written, and we are the beneficiaries of that. As we come this morning, uh, our passage is Romans 14, verses 1 through 12. Here the word of our God. It would be helpful if it was in the book of Romans and not. 1 Corinthians 14 is also good. It's just not what we're going to look at this morning. Um, didn't think that looked familiar. Anyway, look. Now, hear the word of God. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, uh, abstains in the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself. And none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both uh, Lord of both the living and the dead. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God so that each of us will give account of himself to God. The word of our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come this morning, we pray that you would enlighten us, that you would uh, prepare us to receive this message that you have given through your servant Paul you would enable us to grasp what Paul is teaching and hearts that are willing to receive it, even these sometimes hard words. But in the end, Lord, we pray that you would do what you promised and you would use this word and by the power of your spirit to shape not only what we think, but the way that we live and the way that we live and relate, live together and relate to one another. That our very lives as well as our worship would honor you. So, Lord, we come and we worship you now by submitting ourselves to the authority of your word. Speak to us by your spirit. Change us. That we might experience the joy that you have for us. And that we might be encouragers of one another. To the praise and the glory of your grace through Christ. Amen. Well, Jesus said to his disciples that a new commandment I, I give to you. As I have loved you, so you are 
to love one another. And Paul picks up on this theme. And from Romans 12 on, as he's applying everything that he had taught before, he picks up on this very theme, in view of the Lord's mercies, which is how Christ has loved us. And then Paul picks up as one of the primary themes is how we are to live our lives together and that we are to love one another. It's one of the most emphasized themes here in the way that we live our lives out that, that Paul uh, emphasizes and he gives practical sketches and instructions as to how we are to do that and to live our lives out. And where those instructions are followed and lived out, it becomes a, a beautiful picture to all who, who see it. it. It is a living embodiment of what the psalmist in Psalm 133 declares and says how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. And if you've been around the church for any length of time, I hope, that you have seen such love lived out. But if you've been around Christian circles for any length of time, you have probably also, unfortunately, seen the dark side, the almost opposite. Where brothers and sisters in Christ are divided, they quarrel, they squabble, they split, they divide, churches crumble, sometimes over what seem to be the most pitiful and pitiable things. You've probably heard of some, and they're, they're true. Churches have split over things as foolish as church signs and church carpets. The removal of an organ and the introduction of guitars and drums into a worship service. The church that I served before here, prior to my arrival there, uh, there was a squabble over the fact that the session had introduced bread for communion rather than uh, matzah and a few people in their dignity left because the church had become unbiblical no longer worthy to participate because there was leaven in the bread that was served for communion but perhaps the most egregious situation that i have seen somewhat close up took place in a small baptist church in in Rossville, Georgia, which is a small community just south of Chattanooga, right on that, that line. A young couple began attending church. And at first, people were seeming to be happy about it, but it was only a matter of days before there were some grumbling about this couple. First, the grumbling was ignored, but since the grumbling continued, finally there was uh, some inquiry as to well, what's, the, what's the problem here. And the people said, well, this young couple, they're living together, but they're, they're not married, and that's just, that's just not right. And so uh, the pastor thought, okay, there's, there's some legitimacy to this concern. And so he went to the couple, and he explained to them some of the concerns of the people. And the couple said, well, we want to get married at some point. He said, well, I'll do it, and he married them. Problem solved. A couple continued to come, and some of the people were satisfied, but others continued their grumbling, not happy that this new couple was there. Well, one of the things that I neglected to mention was that this couple was interracial. The, the, the husband was black, the wife was white. And so some of the root of their grumbling began to be evidence as they didn't believe that 
an interracial couple should be allowed coming to that church. But the pastor and the leaders of the church said, that's not a biblical standard. And so they welcomed this couple to continue to come. And soon, within a few weeks after the decision of the leadership of the church, there were rumors that began to circulate, first in the church and then a little bit wider in the community, that the pastor's wife was having an affair, which she was not. Not long after that, their flowers began to arrive at their home with romantic notes and signed by uh, some other man that was not her husband. And so uh, the husband, uh, who was a friend of mine, inquired of the florist, what is this? Look, I know there's not anything going on here. Who is sending these flowers? The florist went and traced the records, and the the only thing that makes this story, I mean, it is so foolish and, and pitiable, is that they traced the flowers where the person who was doing this was, tra- was charging the flowers to the church. It was the church treasurer. I mean, it is just, I mean, the stupidity of it sort of makes it funny. And there was no ultimate long-range difficulty other than obviously there, there, were, there was conflict and the fallout of that and the disappointment. But people can get so charged up about any number of things when they lose sight of what is of most importance and then conflict ensues. And and this happens when people turn issues of conscience or want to turn issues of conscience into issues of sin and when other people want to turn issues of sin into issues of conscience. And and people get those things confused. The question for us here this morning is how are we, the, the people of Grace Covenant, to live our lives together in both love and liberty. And we are able to harvest from this passage four important principles that we need to hear and to remember and to apply to our lives individually and corporately. The first principle is this, is that we need to recognize that there are different kinds of people in every church. Now, the fact that there's different kinds of people is kind of a, obviously a, a no-brainer, but that's a, that's a good place to start. I can say more specifically, there are, there are two kinds of people, and even that, you know, there's any number of lists that can there, well, there's left-handed, there's right-handed, there's whatever, there's two kinds of people. But the two kinds of people that are listed here in this particular passage, uh, Paul record, uh, labels them that there are the weak Christians and there are the strong Christians. Now, As I have read this in the past, and as I've been thinking about it this week, I just am reminded that I I don't particularly appreciate uh, Paul's choices of labels here. Uh, For one, it's it's confusing, because the way Paul defines weak and strong is not the way that I am inclined to uh, label people weak and strong. And then further, it, it makes it seem that some people are superior to others. But as you look at the text, we realize that that's not the case at all. And that Paul is defining the nature of two different kinds of people so that we understand that there is a diversity of uh, opinions that are present in every church. But you recognize in, in no way does he correct one over the other. Now, in the passage that we have here this morning, those who would be the strong Christians, uh, they are described, but they are not labeled, but they are labeled uh, in chapter 15, and we'll get to that in, in a few weeks. But the strong Christian, as you look at this passage, is summarized uh, in this way, 
they are the people who have a great sense of freedom because, they, because of their faith. They, they have this great uh, idea that we are free because it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, as Paul writes to the Galatians. And so, therefore, they have a latitude. They can do this or they can not do this. They can do not, you know, there's any number of things that they feel a, a freedom to do. Whereas the one that Paul is labeling weak has a much more restricted conscience. Martin Luther uh, defines it this way. He says this in his commentary on the Romans. When the apostle here speaks of the weak, he has in mind those who were of the, were of the opinion that they were obligated to certain laws to which in reality they were not obligated. And what we need to see here as we look at this description of the weak Christians, of which there are many who are here and many who are part of the church, and also the reality is there are, depending on issues, there are those who are strong in certain issues and weak in other issues, but never in this passage is the word weak applied to somebody's character or commitment to Christ or knowledge or understanding of the Bible or, or, or their faithfulness uh, to, to God or their desire to please and to honor God. It is simply a word that Paul is applying to those who have a narrower conscience, those who are more restricted in what they feel that they can do. And we see that evidenced in what Paul says in, in, in verse 2. He uses this as his example. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. There you go, vegans. No. Um, this really has nothing to do with vegetarians or, or, or vegans or those who have made the personal choice because of health or whatever other reasons that you have chose dietary. But what likely has to do in a historic context is those who have a conscience about eating meat, probably meats that were sacrificed to idols. See, in that day, particularly around Rome, there were any number of pagan temples, and in the pagan temples there were required regular ritual sacrifices. And so people would bring in their, their cows or whatever was to be slaughtered, and the pagan priest would go through the rituals and offering the sacrifice. They would cut up the, the meat and they would burn certain parts of it. And then they would, you know, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of the week, you had all sorts of his meat lying away, lying around. And so the, the local butchers would come and they would purchase the excess and then they would chop it up into their parts and, and then they would sell it in the marketplace. And as a result of that, there was on the marketplace uh, meat that had been sacrificed to idol, also meat that wasn't sacrificed to idol, but a lot of the Christians were under this conviction that, look, this is, this is meat that has been sacrificed to a pagan god, and I believe that it would be dishonoring to God if I was to do anything to support that pagan industry, and so I will refuse to eat that meat as a uh, as a way in which I can remain faithful to God. And so they felt that this restriction, that they could not participate in eating uh, this meat that had been uh, sacrificed to, uh, to the idols. But because they also didn't know when they got to the marketplace, it wasn't like that the sign said, okay, you know, meat sacrificed to idols, you know, $3 a pound. 
uh, meat, not sacrificed to idols, $4 a pound. It, it was just all there. And, and so since they couldn't tell what meat was sacrificed to idols, what meat was not sacrificed to idols, they made a conscious decision. I just won't eat meat. I'll just eat the vegetables because nobody's sacrificing them today. And if they are, they all get all burned out. The ones that are in the marketplace were clearly not the ones that were sacrificed at the altar uh, at pagan temples. And so uh, the one that is called weak has this conscience that wants to honor God. And we see that reiterated in verse 6. is that this person who abstains, just as the person who participates, whatever they do, they're doing it for the honor of God. We, we need to recognize that Paul is affirming that in these people that he's calling weak. And in no way is Paul indicating that there is something wrong with the character of these people. In fact, when we look at this passage, we see uh, a couple of very important things. First, it's not wrong for somebody to be weak. It's not a sin to have a restricted conscience. And there's no hint that Paul is correcting the weak conscience. But the other thing that is strongly suggested here is that while it is not wrong, weak is not strong either. And that there is something about their understanding of grace or the implications of grace that could be strengthened. But Paul is speaking about the two different kinds of people. And again, focusing on those who are labeled weak here, the one with a more restrictive conscience. We need to distinguish what Paul is describing from others that we might meet in any typical church. The key difference between those that Paul is calling weak and those who you might meet who are legalists or even perhaps worse, self-righteous, is that the one who is declared weak here has a desire to honor God and they live out their convictions. In other words, they see this and feel like, I can't do this, it would be dishonoring God, or I can honor God more by not doing this. And so they have their conviction and they live it out. The legalist has their conviction and they want you to live out their conviction. And they're constantly telling you what you ought to do and what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And so they impose their conviction on somebody else. Paul's saying here that the person who has the conscience who he's labeling weak is just one who lives out faithfully in order that they might honor God. The legalist wants you to live it out. And the self-righteous person uses God so that they get honor because you and I would see, or, you know, and I say you and I as if I don't ever do this, so that others will see how righteous they are. And, and so they're using the, their, their, rather than just living out their conviction, they're using their conviction to honor themselves. And what Paul says here is that we need to recognize that there are different people. There are those with restricted consciences and there are those with more free consciences in every church. And Paul gives us instruction that we need to welcome. That's how he begins uh, this, is that we need to welcome them and not quarrel over differences of opinions. So the first principle is recognize that there's different kinds of people. Recognize that there's two kinds of people. There's the strong and there's the weak. But second, Paul tells us in this passage that we need to also repent over our, our tendency to 
judge or despise those who differ from us. And we see this in verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed both. And Paul's here is calling out both sides, and he's calling out both sides equally. He's speaking to those who would have the restricted conscience, those who he's calling weak, and he's saying, be careful of the temptation to judge other people according to your standards. I was reminded this week of something that, according to legend, took place a number of years ago at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in, in London. And the minister there was the renowned Charles Spurgeon, but it was a, a week where Spurgeon was not in the pulpit. They had a guest minister who was a very noted evangelist of his own day, who took his time in the pulpit to preach and to rail against the, the evils of alcohol and of tobacco. The people in the congregation were quite uncomfortable because they knew that their pastor had a pension for a cigars. And so after the service, somebody went up and asked Spurgeon, so what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm going to go home and smoke one for the glory of God and give that some thought. You know, there's this temptation that those who have the more narrow conscience look at other people and wonder, well, what's wrong with you people? Why do you participate? Why? And so Paul is saying, be careful not to judge. But at the same time, he's not just pointing his finger at those with a narrower conscience. He's pointing those at freedom as well. Elsewhere, we're told, don't let your freedom be used as a license. Don't let your freedom be used as an offense. And we'll pick up on this next week on, on offense to other people. But he points out what the issue becomes is the issue is may not be so much as judgment, but despise. And the word despise does not necessarily mean hate. And actually, it's, it's worse than hate because the word hate, there's a passion that's involved. Despise literally means not considering somebody worthy of any of your consideration. I mean, they're just so beneath you. They're beneath contempt. And, and there's this tendency sometimes in churches that find themselves living very free, which I think largely is characteristic of our church. There is a freedom that is here uh, uh, among many uh, of, of us. Uh, and there's temptation at times when you encounter those who have more restricted conscience when they ask questions how can you be so free or when you can tell that they're uncomfortable or perhaps they express their discomfort with some of the freedoms and uh, that that uh, that uh, you exercise as christians to just get frustrated and just to ignore them and just think they don't they just don't understand it's just not I'm not going to get into that with anybody. And rather than to understand where they are, it's just to dismiss and despise and to not care at all about their conscience. Sometimes it goes e even further. That those who have the narrower consciences, when they come into churches that tend to be more free, they feel like they can't participate at all because if you don't participate in certain things, that you don't belong. It happens of church if you have a bunch of people that, you know, like to sit around smoking cigars and drinking beer, uh, and others come, somebody comes in from a tradition that is totally different from that, and it's being flaunted as uh, such a normal practice, somebody can feel that they are not welcome, that Paul is warning against that kind of an attitude about somebody else. He's reminding us that there are different 
kinds of people. There's different attitudes about various issues. And here he's calling us both out to, uh, to repent and saying, look, if you are somebody who considers yourself strong, repent of your tendency to uh, dismiss and to despise those with narrower views or with restrictive consciences. And if you see yourself as somebody who is faithful because of what you choose not to do, or you're more, you're more sensitive, more restricted, beware of your temptation to bring judgment, assuming that because somebody has freedom, they must not be a Christian or they're living their lives uh, in, in sin. And so we begin and we see two very important foundational things. One is recognize that there are people, there are different, two kinds of people. There are the strong and the weak. And second, we all need to repent of whatever tendency goes along with whatever type of person we are. The third thing Paul urges us to do here by implication is to not just recognize that there are different kinds of people and to repent of our own tendencies but to refocus our attention on the gospel. What causes divisions among Christians and causes otherwise healthy churches to fracture and to crumble? James tells us it's because we quarrel, we fight because we want something and we don't get it. We covet something, we can't obtain it, and so we go to war, we kill, we, we, we quarrel, we fight over things. It's because we make other things more important. We move other things other than the gospel to the central place to determine whether we are faithful or not. And whenever this happens, and wherever this happens, it's because the gospel has been displaced from its rightful spot as of the thing of first importance. It's often done while the gospel itself is not denied. The people continue to believe every premise of the gospel that we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ who died for us and who rose again for our salvation. That premise is not denied, but it is pushed out to the periphery and it's replaced by any number of other things that become the central mark of faithfulness. Sometimes those things are, are foolish, but a lot of times those things are, are, are good. It could be a commitment to missions and to evangelism. It could be a commitment to, uh, to doing mercy uh, for uh, other people, to having compassion. It could be any number of things. It could be particular secondary doctrinal issues. One of the great divisions in the church at times is what Bible translation is acceptable or best. And you have whole camps of people that are out claiming, you know, nothing but the King James Bible will be acceptable. One of the great things that I was thinking when I moved to Williamsburg, I haven't had that discussion with anybody here, is I would just point down the road and say, well, what Bible did they have when they landed on the shores here? Because, you know, that was 1607. King James didn't come around until 1611. That's kind of a sidetrack. But anyway... Um, But people take good things and they move them into the central place. Theologian Michael Horton calls those kinds of things sometimes fascinations that lead from the cross. It means they're really good things, but when they take the central place and we turn all of our attention onto those things, instead of seeing how those things connect to the cross, which is central, they become fascinations that we spend our time digging into 
but they lead away from the cross because the cross is now on the periphery and those other things have displaced it centrally. And, and so what Paul is saying to us here is that we need to refocus on the gospel. Now, somebody might say, well, where is that in this text? Well, look again at the end of verse 3. See, Paul is giving this correction and, and, and calling us to repentance and instructing us not to uh, be guilty of, of judging and of condemning. But what is his rationale for that? What's the basis that he says that we are not to do that? The end of verse 3, for God has welcomed him or God has welcomed her. Now think about it for a moment. How does God welcome anybody? Who is welcomed by God? And the answer is those who have recognized their need of grace, those who have believed in God's gift of Christ, who gave himself for us, our substitute, who sacrificed himself on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, and then rose again for our salvation. God accepts those who are in Christ, those who have received grace, those who have believed and embraced the gospel. And so Paul's saying, look, you need to recognize there are different kinds of people, and you need to repent of the tendency to judge other people because they have different opinions than yours, and then you need to refocus on the gospel because the reason that we don't judge other people is because you are not being judged because Jesus has paid the penalty for you. God has welcomed this person. And he's calling our attention to be refocused on the gospel. And when we keep the gospel central, and we make a practice of refocusing our attention on the incredible truth that God has welcomed us, not because we've merited anything, not because we are special, but by his grace, through faith in Christ, it frees us to have a welcoming attitude even toward those who might disagree with us or who live their lives with different convictions on non-essential things. And so to live lives of both love and liberty, we need to recognize this difference of opinions. We need to repent of our own tendencies. We need to refocus, our, uh, refocus on the gospel. And then the last thing that I would say is this, is that we are called to reorient our lives and our goals to the glory of God. Look at verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And then verse 6, continuing on, the one who observes uh, the day observes it in honor of the Lord, the one who eats and eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, uh, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself. And so Paul here is calling us to reorient our lives and the goal of our lives to be lived out to the glory of God. Now, 
the historic context here of the illustration that Paul is using uh, about days probably suggests reference to the Sabbath day. What day do you practice the Sabbath? Is it you know the still on the on Saturday, which was the which is the biblical Sabbath, or uh, on Sunday the, the Lord's Day, which became the the Christian Sabbath because uh, the Christians were no longer allowed to uh, worship with the, in in the in the synagogues. And so when he's talking about days, what days is better? Are you a Saturday or are you a Sunday? Um, that would be uh, the kind of question, and then having division over that. Probably a more contemporary context might focus our attention on such days as Christmas and Easter and, and Halloween. You know, one considers one day to be good, another considers another day to be good. And, and there are people, and with great, with understanding, uh, understandable, that they look at Christmas and say, nowhere do we see Christmas in the Bible. I mean, we see Jesus born, but we don't know specifically when he was, being, when he was born. Nor are we told that we are to celebrate uh, in the way that we celebrate, even in the churches, uh, the way that we celebrate. Now, forget the Santa Claus part. And the scriptures tell us that while Jesus died and, and rose again, that every Lord's Day after that is to be celebrated. Every Sunday is Easter. And so there are Christians who would say, you know, to celebrate the, this mish, Easter is the, you know, taken from the pagan Ishtar and, uh, you know, just kind of combined as the Christians try to say, yeah, we'll embrace that. And so many things that people confuse people, that's where the Easter Bunny came in, has absolutely nothing to do with going into a hole and coming back out. And so there's Christians who say, you know, we shouldn't participate, we shouldn't celebrate that. Those are, are, are not biblical. And there's others that are saying, you know, of course they can be, uh, we can participate. Uh, long ago, not that I was ever a conviction that we shouldn't celebrate that, but I thought there was great wisdom when an older pastor told me, look, if the whole world, if the whole community is willing to focus their attention on a particular aspect of the life of Christ, go for it. Don't argue. So if everybody wants to talk about the birth of Jesus, let's talk about the birth of Jesus and all the implications of the incarnation. If everybody wants to focus on the resurrection, great. Let's talk about the resurrection, the implications of the resurrection. Now, Halloween's a whole other one. And so we have, even in our church, people who say, Halloween, it's just evil. It just, and there's people who would say, it's the only opportunity I have to be invited to my neighbors to knock on the door and have conversations. Or if one of my neighbors come to my house and I can show hospitality to them. I never have any other opportunity to do that. And we are free to go out, you know? So if you don't want to dress up like a witch or a demon, then don't do it, but you know what? And I've often told people, you want to really get involved and, and, and contextualize this? If you've ever seen those silhouettes of John Calvin, dress up like that, you'll scare everyone in your neighborhood. I mean, that's, um, and, and, and yet, you know, honor the Reformation part of it. And so those are days, and we argue over days. And then as Paul says, and there are some who say all days, and they're the person who sometimes I find quite obnoxious when they're the ones who come along and say, you know, every day is good when Jesus is in it. You know, it's true, but, you know, it's, you know, kind of seems a little trite sometimes. But so Paul is saying here, using this illustration of one day, a person thinks one day is good, another person thinks another day is good. Somebody else says, well, every day is, is good. And, and it's... Paul's answer to this potential division is, is really quite fascinating. I mean, I want you to stop for a moment and don't look down at your text, but think, how would you answer? So, you know, assuming we had that problem in our church and we came and asked you, how, how do you think we ought to address this issue that would bring reconciliation, not get everybody to agree with your position, but how it would bring reconciliation of the different positions? where everybody would be welcome, which is what Paul's objective is. I mean, my natural tendency would be to say, look, it's not a big deal. Kind of get over it. Or 
really, this is kind of getting you out of sorts. You're not yourself, you know, maybe you need to eat a Snickers bar or something. I mean, just get back and it, it just get, get over it. But Paul says something which is almost the exact opposite. He doesn't say this is not a big deal. He says each one should fully be fully convinced in his own mind. He doesn't limit, he doesn't lower the passions that people have about this, but he reorients them in light of the gospel, in view of the gospel, to go look at your own heart and through your own convictions. And he says, each one should be convinced in his own mind. And that itself is, is fascinating to me. In other words, you need to know what is your conviction? What is it you really think is right and wrong? And, and why are you convinced of that? Where did you get this from? Did you get it from the scriptures? Is it a principle that you're applying to the scriptures? Did your grandma tell you that when you were eight years old and it just kind of stuck with you? And so, you know, grandma was right about everything, so that's got to be your conviction. Each one of you needs to be fully convinced in your own mind. You need to know what your convictions are, where those convictions came. And then when you are fully convinced of your conviction, then live it out to the glory of God. Live it out. And in so living out, you can honor God. Because your motive is not being superior to anybody or bringing anybody else down or bringing anybody to agree with you. Your motive and your action are one focus, which is... I do this because, God, I believe in doing or not doing. I will honor you best. And so our attention now goes to the focus of living our lives to honor or to glorify God best. And Kemper some time ago told me a story of something that took place in this church before I got here that I think beautifully illustrates the best practice of this. Apparently when the session chose to include wine as along with grape juice for communion, one of those couples who prepared communion in our church had a strong conviction about whether alcohol was appropriate for Christians to partake in. I'm not going to name who, who they were, just because not to embarrass them. And so they stopped setting up for communion. As I understand it, they didn't write any formal letters of complaint. They didn't say, this is wrong. They didn't threaten to leave the church. They didn't do anything. They didn't try to convince anybody else of practice. They continue to worship but their conviction was, I, I, don't want, I don't think this is the way I can honor God. I don't think this is the way. And, and so they chose to refrain from a practice that they were uncomfortable with so that they could honor God. But at the same time, recognizing that others have a more liberty of conscience and are honoring God as well with, because both are giving thanks to God. And, and the ultimate goal is, Know your conviction. Reorient your goals of your lives to glorify, to honor God. Know your convictions. Know where they come from. Know what they are. And then do it. But focus on how you are honoring God. Allowing grace for the other person to either participate 
or to abstain as they feel compelled in the body. And so as I wrap up, I want to do this. I want to, I want to first speak to those who consider yourselves strong. And I would say to you first, you need to have a conviction. Now, that might see a surprise. So to be clear, you need to not only be clear of where your conviction come from and why you hold it, you need to be clear how you will exercise your liberty to the glory of God. The reason that I point this out is that there are some who think of themselves as strong, who are actually deceiving themselves because it's not so much a conviction that you have of liberty, it is apathy. You know, it's never bothered me, so therefore I do it. That's not a conviction. Paul is saying in these issues where there's a division, we need to be aware, have this conviction, know what your conviction is, and then live out your conviction. Having an absence of a strong conscience is not the same as having a conviction that honors God. And so your participation, while you are free to do that, it may not be sin, nor is it necessarily honoring to God because you have that liberty. Have a conviction. And then second, welcome those who have a more strict conscience. Don't despise them as killjoys. Embrace them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And for those of you who Paul labels weak, again, I emphasize uh, for my own protection, it's Paul's calling you weak, not me. I would come up with another word. I just don't know what it would be. But then again, since Paul was inspired by the Spirit, he's right and I'm wrong. I will say this. My hope for you is that you may somehow, in some ways, become strong and experience the freedom for which Christ has set you free. But in saying that, in no way should anybody ever coerce you into violating your conscience on these secondary issues. Nobody should compel you to participate in something as if somehow you are a lesser Christian because you abstain from certain things. Nor should you try to convince other people that they need to. It's not that you can't engage in conversation, share the reason for your conviction. In fact, I think it's important that you tell people that you have a conviction because one of the things that happens in a church that has more liberty, as ours tends to, is those who with narrower convictions, they kind of show up. People just assume everybody's got the same liberty of conscience and then people are unnecessarily offended because somebody offers you, you know, a beer, a wine, a cigar, or, or whatever, and not knowing that you have this conviction. Make, make it known. so that the others will be aware. And then, with your conviction, live it out to the glory of God. Because in the end, we want to be a community where the gospel is central, and where everyone can love and interact with each other. Because Jesus is Lord of us all. Father, we pray with thanksgiving for this instruction of this, some ways simple, but other ways corrosive problem that manifests itself in pretty much every church at some point. And so, Lord, we thank you for those who are different and pray that the differences themselves will sharpen us all. But let us encourage one another to turn our attention to Christ and Him glorified, that we 
might lend our voices together to the praise of your glory and grace. Grant peace to us, joy and love, even with liberty. We pray in Jesus. Amen.